Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell. I'm film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. Morning Zoo DJ. Sounds for no reason. I feel like you would be good at that, actually. Yeah, other than the waking up, although I do wake up early now, so. Yeah, that's true. The waking up is a problem. I remember I I used to do movie reviews on morning radio, and they would be waking up when I was going to sleep, so it is a bit rough. Also, who wants to, you know, join a dead medium like terrestrial radio, Josh? (laughs) Yeah, it's all about podcasting. That's where we're at now. Yeah. And so in this season of our podcast, we've been talking about the movies of 1996 and this is our season finale, uh, although we have some uh, some other stuff coming Little up, treats, but... little treats for you guys. Yeah, but this is our traditional final official episode of the season, which is our audience choice poll. We kind of come up with a theme and we offer three different options and we ask you, our listeners, to give us your feedback on the old social media's about which one you'd like to hear us talk about. So in this season, we took a look at three movies that were the directorial debuts of well-known actors. That included Billy Bob Thornton's Sling Blade, Steve Buscemi's Trees Lounge, and our winner, which I think we totally could have predicted, Tom Hanks's That Thing You Do. So that's what we're talking about today, That Thing You Do. And it's beloved, it seems like. I'm okay that it won because I think I would probably have, if given the choice, picked this one last. Like, this is the least likely I would have rewatched, even though I don't dislike the film. It's just like, eh, it's fine, you know? So, but yeah, a lot of people, uh, it's a feel good, happy romp, isn't it? That it is. And it was the first movie, of course, directed and also written by Tom Hanks who also plays a supporting role in this film. It was a modest hit. It grossed $34.5 million on its budget of $26 million. But as you, as you were just saying, it is, people love it. So um, even if it wasn't a massive box office success, it's remained this kind of pop culture fixture over the last nearly 25 years since it came out. And it seems like it's maybe even more popular now than and, it was. And I wonder, you know, we, we uh, especially with these um, years uh, that we look back in, in the 90s during when video stores and VHSs and then, you know, DVDs were really booming. I wonder if a movie could have that type of resonance today where, you know, something comes out on Netflix and then 20 years later, it still is this like kind of like. Thing, like that thing you do or a love actually that it becomes like, oh, we got to watch it every year. Well, I think possibly. I mean, who knows what Netflix will look like or what streaming services will look like in 20 years. But I think because of the nature of those things where anything that comes out is just available then indefinitely, I absolutely think that could happen. And I think there are instances probably of a movie or a, a TV series or whatever that comes out on Netflix and not a lot of people watch, but it's still there kind of in the background. And then new people discover it over time. And who knows, maybe five years later or something, it suddenly becomes popular, even though it wasn't at first, because it's just as available as it was when it was initially released. But it hasn't really been enough time yeah. with those with those things to really say. If, if you get the kids from TikTok to support your movie, then you can, you know, jump it to number one. That's what that's, we know. That's true. That's what we're seeing happen right now uh, on Netflix. And in fact, that is what's happening, right? Uh, Dave's Dave's favorite guy, our producer Dave, his favorite guy, Gaspar Noe, his film <laughs> Love is suddenly a huge hit on Netflix thanks to TikTok. So the kids love it. The kids love it. And that movie, <laughs> that movie came out five years ago. So that's that's sort of in a way. The kind of thing you're referring to. Yeah. If there's two movies you want to compare, it's that thing you do. As far as, you know, erotic uh, filmmaking uh, love. Yes. This is a, a quite an erotic drama from Tom Hanks that we're talking about today. Uh, so not love, but that thing you do was generally well received. 
It got an A minus uh, from CinemaScore, the audience polling service, and critics liked it, but kind of as Jason was alluding to, had a similar response that they all thought it was fun and nice, but not particularly great necessarily. It did get two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. Roger Ebert said, that thing you do is the first film written and directed by Tom Hanks, and not surprisingly, it is as sunny and guileless as many of the characters he's played. The movie may be inconsequential, but in some ways that's a strength. Without hauling in a lot of deep meanings, it remembers with great warmth a time and a place. And that is, of course, the 1960s in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, and then elsewhere uh, in the sort of garage rock scene, I guess you could call it. Yes, and you know I'm a big fan of the garage rock and its history. But, um, you know, I think uh, one thing I wanted to mention because uh, you you have said it, and it was mentioned in the review, the first movie uh, written and directed by Tom Hanks. And uh, just tying it back into our first season, uh, he wrote this script while doing the press tour for Forrest Gump, where he was just doing interview after interview and just getting bored. So uh, so he wrote this film while that was all going on. Man, see, that's why he's Tom Hanks. If I was bored during work, I would not write a future hit film. I would, um, I don't even know. You would Definitely. procrastinate to not get the work done and stay bored. Exactly. That's true. And then I would screw myself and be stressed out and there would be no hit film written at all. That's that thing you do. That is that thing I do. And I do it very well. Um, Dwayne Berge in The Hollywood Reporter said, there's no dark side to this story. No devilish snarl about getting no, quote, satisfaction. It's upbeat and utterly predictable in a positive way, but it's also a bit pat and elemental, in large part owing to Hanks's bland band characters. Although Hanks flashes a gentle satiric sensibility and even takes a run at a Richard Lester Hard Day's Night sort of sequence, this rock and roll roadshow is mostly akin tonally and aesthetically to early Ron Howard, namely Happy Days. Full of easy, monkeys-like shines, it's not surprising that first-time director Hanks' major influence seems to be his former TV director and first big movie director. Like Howard, he's winningly middle-class in his values and just a tad off-center in his sensibility. So, a lot did of Ron, damning with faint praise there. Did Ron Howard direct Happy Days? I know he was Richie Cunningham, but I don't remember. I mean... Know. I'm not sure, but I think he probably did direct some of it because he was angling to become a director at that time. And my guess is he got the chance to direct, you know, like a lot of people on, a lot of actors on TV shows will, after a while, get the chance to direct an episode here and there if they want to give it a Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't mind. I know what he's saying, like the characters are all sort of like just one dimensional, like you, you're the guy who likes jazz and you're the guy who wants to be a rock star type thing, but like. That didn't bother me, but what bothered me is that nothing really ever happened to any of them that you wouldn't think would be the next thing that would happen in the journey. Yeah, it does feel very inconsequential, as uh, as Ebert said. And I think a lot of the characters are even less than one-dimensional. Um, and maybe in part that's sort of intentional, the bass player character played by Ethan Embry, who doesn't even really have a name and the, kind of the point of his character is that the bass players are anonymous. But yeah, it's 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 superficial. It's the kind of thing that you can kind of bounce along with and then afterwards realize they didn't really have much of an effect on me. Yeah, That's, it's like an episode of House Hunters. <laughs> there you go. An episode hey, of Josh, House Hunters. Yes. What, if, they're, um, if they're less than one dimensional, how would you describe them? How, how would you describe them in dimensions? As, as zero dimensional, I guess. I don't uh, know. Okay. I didn't know if it was like a half a dimension or that actually takes talent to sketch out. They're not zero know. dimensional. The bass player does play a bass, you know, like that's and true. He is going to the military. We know those two things about him. That is true. So I don't know. Some sort of quantum math term that implies uh, a number between zero and one. He has a, a love affair with one of the uh, supreme like girl group singers. So, you know. He did. He did. It just it just feels like a lot of these characters don't really have uh, anything below the surface personality wise. And, and, and those things are, they're not even necessarily personality traits. They're just like actions. And you don't get a sense of where they come from with these people as people. Um, I agree. 
So finally, uh, Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, forfeiting the chance to make a long and self-serving historical pageant, Tom Hanks has taken something other than the standard movie star route to directorial distinction. Mr. Hanks's debut feature, written and directed with delightful good cheer, is rock and roll nostalgia presented as pure fizz. Lightweight and undemandingly likable, that thing you do asks its audience to do nothing but recall the days when the clock radio was a hot appliance and the cast of Bonanza might be spotted signing autographs. That, and go home humming the film's bouncy theme song. And of course, the theme song is really what makes the movie work, I think. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and uh, Maslin might want to look back at those words of Hanks forfeiting his opportunity to work on uh, historical epics with all the uh, work he did after this. That's true, although not as a director, to be fair. No, but you you can also understand, like, you know, look, Tom Hanks started as, like, kind of a comedy leading man type, right? And then moved into, like, you know, America's actor. So, like, why wouldn't he want to just go and do something fun and take a break and, you know, just just enjoy himself for a little bit? Right. Well, and I don't think she's saying that it's a bad thing. I think she probably sees it as a good thing, that it's far better for him to make this movie, even if it's a little forgettable, that's just fun and nice, than to make a three-hour self-serious, you know, slog of an epic, uh, like, some other actors maybe would be inclined to do where he's able to kind of do what he wants. He is, he's such a huge deal. As you say, he's America's actor. He, even in 1996, and it's, it's, it's pretty impressive that in 1996, Tom Hanks was like a huge star who could get whatever he wants. And now 24 years later, Tom Hanks is a huge star who can get whatever he wants. I mean, he's sustained that for a really long time. Right. And there's that story where he basically went into the studio and told them like, I'm a huge star. I'm, I want, you got to let me do what I want. And they're like, you're right. And then he go and, and then he went and made <laughs> that thing you do. So that is like kind of, um, you know, an anecdote about the history of this. So, yeah, I don't know. I honestly like he's, I mean, we're going to get into it, but he's the most fun character in it. The Mr. White character that he plays. I think. Yeah. He's clearly having fun with his role in addition to enjoying the writing and directing of the movie. And I think it's a good use of the clout that he had. As as much as I agree with these reviews and I feel like this movie is kind of surface level and a bit forgettable, I, I enjoyed it. And I, I'm i sure I enjoyed it more than I would have enjoyed the theoretical, uh, long historical epic. That, that we're making up for the sake that of we're this conversation. Up, right. But, but no, that... that uh, I, that he could have done or or other potential things that he could have done, that he could have used the position that he was in to kind of pressure a studio into letting him do that. I feel like here he, you know, he used his power for good. <laughs> he uh, he took advantage of it in the right way. And so, also, I mean, what, 25 million, right? 24 million, something like that. Right, he he right. wasn't he wasn't raking him over the coals for all the money that he brought in for his work or anything. That's true. And I'm sure that also puts a less less pressure on him. You know, if he had come in and, and started out with some $150 million project, he would have been under a lot more pressure to to make the money back and to make it into a huge hit, whereas this can be a modest hit and that's good enough. So smart guy, that Tom Hanks. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> so had you seen, did you see this back when it came oh, out? Oh yeah, of course. We all saw it when it came out. And uh, I, upon the rewatch, I, you know, this is another one that, um, the experience is heightened when you're watching it with other people. Those laughs, like those little quick zingers that uh, Steve Zahn throws in. When you're getting the laughs with the entire audience, I feel like it's that feel-good moment that's a little more palatable than when you're just watching it on your couch being like, is there ever going to be any conflict in this movie? <laughs> yeah, I actually, you say that, but I had not seen this when it came out. Um, although I had seen it before re-watching it for this podcast. I saw it maybe like, two years ago or something, just randomly as a movie that is is so beloved and is so well known that it was one of those movies that I thought, well, I should probably see this. And so I did. And it was it was fine. It was nice. And I, I felt pretty much exactly the same way about it now. I never had that experience of watching it in a group of people, but watching it alone at home, um, I, it passed the time. It didn't feel like a chore. It was it was a pleasant experience. So my, my opinion kind of stayed the same, but it hasn't been a long time. I don't know. My, my, my sister Brandy was one of the people who was very gung ho about us doing this. And I assume when we were younger that she was a big fan of this, but I never remember us watching it together or her, you know, kind of 
uh, pushing me to watch it. But. And, and as someone who knows your sister, Brandy, little inside baseball here for the audience. Oh, yeah. Very exciting stuff. I can see her liking this film. Uh, <laughs> Dave, you're, you're the music guy of the group. What, what about you? You must have saw it in the theater. I did. That, that was the last time I saw it until just a couple of days ago when I rewatched it. And uh, I, you know, it's one of those movies that I think was fun at the time, but I really didn't remember much about, you know, I only saw it the one time. And so it was, it was interesting. Finally, it's not a movie you really expect to rewatch, you know, it's like a movie you kind of just expect to forget about. Yeah, although, I think there are people who probably like, if they had the DVD, they put it on in the background all the time and watch it not constantly, but often. Yeah, I feel like this is the kind of thing that's probably like a comfort movie for a lot of people. Sure. Um, maybe not us, but yeah. <laughs> for, for, for others, I think it is. So uh, any other background you want to mention on this one, Jason? Um, I, you know, I mean, look, we'll, we'll talk about it, but I mean, it was an homage to the Beatles. Like you had mentioned the Richard Lester Hard Day's Night sequence. There's a, there's a ton of this different Beatles uh, references throughout. So um, that's kind of fun, you know, um, and uh, that's all I want to say, Josh. All right. Well, in that case, we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on that thing you do. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, We've been talking about our audience choice poll winner, Tom Hanks's That Thing You Do, which is nice. It's a nice movie. It's pleasant. Like it the is. song itself. I feel like the song itself is better than the movie, is, is more than just pleasant. It is really like a great pop song. And it has to be because they play it over and over and over again in this movie. And I, like I was saying before, this movie would not work if that song wasn't really good and wasn't enjoyable to listen to again and again and again and again. I think that's fair. Uh, but, you know, for, for some credit, we, the, we only see the performance of the song twice in full, which I think is good. You know, once is when they perform it uh, at the uh, Villa Piano's Pizza to win the contest. Oh, no, not Villa Piano's, at the college where they win the talent show for the first time, right? And yeah. you, you, that's when Tom Everett Scott speeds up the, the beat and we actually see what the song becomes, you know? And then the other time is when they're doing it on national television. And uh, I don't know if you read that, but uh, yeah, when, um, when he speeds it up, that's kind of an homage to Please Please Me, you know, the Beatles song, which was originally a ballad and then, you know, hit it as a, as a little rock ditty, baby. <laughs> yes. And so uh, we should say, if uh, anyone isn't familiar with this movie, it is the story of the Wonders, who are a one-hit wonder uh, garage band in the 1960s from Erie, Pennsylvania. And one thing that I like about this movie is that the main character is the drummer of the band. And that's not something mm -hmm. that you would expect. So Tom Everett Scott plays the drummer guy, uh, along with Jonathan Sheck as the lead singer slash songwriter and Steve Zahn as the guitar player, and Ethan Embry, as I mentioned earlier, as the unnamed bass player, uh, plus Liv Tyler as the girlfriend of Jonathan Sheck's character slash eventual love interest for uh, Tom Everett Scott, the drummer, and Tom Hanks as the record executive who helps them on their way to brief stardom with their one hit. So, And uh, I think, is it Charlize Theron's first film appearance as... Uh... Tom Everett Scott's initial girlfriend who leaves him for a dentist. And uh, we find that out in a very quick scene where they say she left him for a dentist. <laughs> yes. I think it's it's maybe her second or third appearance, but it's certainly one of her earliest roles. And uh, she, you know, she does her best with it. It's not, it's not a huge role, but. No, neither of the women have anything to do. I mean, dude, Liv Tyler has nothing to do. She's just there on the tour. And she really has nothing to do the whole time. And then she has a speech where she's like, I can't believe I wasted all those good kisses on you. It's just like, kind of, it's a very cheesy, but kind of, she sells it. That I way. mean, I guess it's not like there's a, a limited amount of good kisses she has, you know, she, she can just well, replenish the good she, kisses. Give him she time. has limited time. She could be using those kisses uh, on someone else during that time. I know. And uh, I do think that's one of the weakest parts of the film is, I mean, we see that they're that they're separating, you know, the lead singer and, and Liv Tyler Faye. 
Um, but um, this kind of budding romance between Faye and Guy, the drummer, like what? I mean, like he he uh, makes sure she gets into a car when the crowd is trying to, you know, kind of th- uh, throw themselves at the uh, at the band. And there's really not much at all to their relationship. She there takes isn't. care of her on a plane, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you can see I, I think it's it's clear that they have some sort of connection. I think you can see that, but it definitely goes from like little early hints to all of a sudden full on. Um, but of course that happens at the very end of the movie. It's, yeah. It's your resolution. I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just goes from zero to full and then it's over. So uh, I, I agree. I think they have, I think they actually, they have a nice vibe and a nice chemistry and they could have done more with that with the connection between Guy and Faye, and it would have been nice, but it does feel a bit abrupt well, there. Well, at the end. But, but everything about the end feels very abrupt. So, well, and I, and honestly, I don't mind the, uh, the abruptness of it because I think that's kind of a cool story to tell of like this band that like, you know, took off and then they broke up and then that was it for them. You know, like that's okay with me. But um, th- did you know, has anyone ever seen, there's like a 148 minute, uh, cut of this like the extended cut and like there's all these scenes that go into the background of like the relationships and some character development and I think like look I don't want to watch a two and a half hour version of this film but I think and I can't believe I'm saying this but maybe 10 more minutes of uh because normally <laughs> I like you know the other I'm the other way like let's slice and dice baby but you know 10 more minutes of some character stuff and some interaction between some players. So we got a better idea of it. Like that wouldn't have been a bad thing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I agree with you. I definitely don't want to see a version of this. That's 40 minutes longer. I think that would be dreadful. And uh, mm-hmm. I have not seen it. I've, I've read a couple. I think there were a couple of letterboxed reviews that I saw from people who mentioned having seen the longer cut. And, and in all cases, they said that it was too long and it didn't add anything. So um, I'm not sure that it maybe makes things better. I agree with you that maybe a little character development would help. Maybe the character development that that longer cut offers isn't good enough. I don't know. I can't say. But there is no there is no version in between the theatrical version and the much longer extended cut where we could see what you're describing. But yeah. it might have been nice. Well, I think like, you know, we're like you had mentioned faint praise up up uh, top there in the first segment like it sounds like we're, you know, coming down on it, but we all kind of feel like we enjoyed the film. There's just absolutely zero conflict in there. And if it wasn't, it didn't, if it didn't say written by Tom Hanks, maybe it doesn't get made. But let's give like the, some of the positive stuff it's due. Like you said, that song is is great. It was nominated for an Academy and Golden Globe uh, Award for best original song losing to Evita, which we have mentioned before. Yeah, uh, we did mention that before. Yeah, and that, Andrew that was Lloyd a, that Weber. was a very bad choice on the, Academy. this is a better song. Yeah, for yes. sure. Oh yeah. Tim rise. But, um, I think what this movie does the best is encapsulate the spirit of what a garage rock band is and showcasing the, um, I don't even want to say evolution, but like that kind of rocket ship that if you catch fire and and bands did in the 60s, we know that, you know, um, just kind of how much fun that is. Like, I love the sequence when they first hear um, their song on the radio and they're running down the street and they're running into the appliance store that guy's dad owns and they're dancing around and just running back and forth like that was such a feel good moment. And I think the way he shot it, like the emotions really shine through. Like, I love that segment. Yeah, that segment is great. And that it really does capture that excitement and that glee and the, the kind of purity of it that those characters have at that moment when they first hear their song on the radio. So yeah, everything about this, it, it does. It gives you a sense of, of fun and excitement and you don't really notice that lack of conflict, I feel like, until maybe the third act, where they're getting to a point where in a traditional rock biopic, in a movie that was based on actual true events, you would get to the like darkness and the conflict, where Tom Hanks's character would really screw them over, which he doesn't really do. He kind of pushes them in certain directions that maybe are not um, artistically relevant, 
But he's generally like a good guy who wants them to succeed. But in, in another kind of movie like this, maybe he would steal all their money or something. Or one of the characters would become a drug addict. Or uh, instead of just kind of having a mild fight and breaking yeah, up Jonathan she, Sheck and Faye, he would, you know, beat her or, or something. Or I, mean, I don't know that I wanted those her, things to know, happen. So, but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, tonally, it's tough because it is such a delightful little film here, right? So, but I, I mean, that's the biggest, the biggest um, negative for me is the lack of conflict. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I think there could be a way to create some higher stakes without having to do all of that super dark music biopic stuff. And I like that it doesn't do that because really probably there were far more stories in real life of musicians that kind of went like this versus the ones that had all of that intense, dark drama. It's just those are the ones that movies get made about because there's a lot of material to, to build from. So I like that he's trying to tell this different kind of story. I just feel like he doesn't, he doesn't find a way to generate conflict in a different fashion. And I think maybe the love triangle could have been a way to do that, that it's so underdeveloped, as you were pointing out, that it's almost non-existent. And maybe if there was more to it, it could have raised the stakes in some way, or we could have better understood the individual musical ambitions of some of the characters, whether it was Guy, who's really into jazz and gets excited about meeting his jazz hero, uh, played by Bill Cobb, or whether it was Jonathan Sheck's character. And I felt like it was a little unfair to him because he's portrayed as kind of a jerk because he has this, this self-regard for his songwriting abilities and he wants them to record his original songs rather than some dumb covers. But I mean, are we not okay? Like, should we not be in favor of artistic integrity? First of all, he wrote that thing you do, which is a fucking great song. So he mm -hmm. clearly has the talent. Should we not want the band to record more of his songs that he's uh, good at writing? I'm all for artistic ambition, Josh. You know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, I mean, clearly the best example is sticks with Dennis DeYoung versus sticks without Dennis DeYoung. And uh, nobody cares about sticks without Dennis DeYoung. Who wants that? So. Yeah, sure. Well, Dennis DeYoung, also known for being a jerk, I think, isn't he? Well, I mean, you said I'm trying to equate these. I don't think he's a right. jerk as much as possibly a diva who knows what a genius he is, because we all know what a genius Dennis DeYoung is, you know. Uh -huh. But no, I think, look, you made you made some good points. The love triangle is one thing like we have. We see them have a bad performance on like a showcase. Like maybe that could have been there. Maybe Mr. White could have been like, hey, I'm even though you guys just were the worst thing I've ever seen, I'm going to sign you and take you on the road. Maybe he would have been like, you guys aren't ready for the big time yet, kid, you know, and they, we could have seen him work for something. There could have been a rival band maybe that beat him in something. There's a lot of ways to do it without having, you know, drug overdoses and uh, Sid Vicious murdering Nancy there, you know? So. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think maybe either Tom Hanks can't figure out how to do that, or maybe he didn't want to. Maybe his idea was that he wanted a movie that was without really serious conflict and that was just a, a celebration of nostalgia. And, and he achieves that. And again, I feel like the movie kind of coasts on that for a long time until you get to the point where it's sort of a stand-in where you expect in, a, in another movie of this type, we would have the conflict and it just isn't there. And then just as it sort of arises, it's the movie over. ends. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I didn't, that didn't bother me, uh, the abruptness as much as just that it wasn't there um, the whole time. Um, you know, we, um, we talked about Howard Shore on the crash episode. He also did the music here. That guy, what a year for him in 96, huh? Yeah. Quite, quite versatile, very yeah. different kinds yeah. of movies. <laughs> So, I mean, those little things go a long way. They're not little things, but, you know, the the soundtrack of the movie, we know that thing you do is like the the song, the song that keeps repeating. And in a way, I kind of like that because that was the that was a throwback to me of movies of the 60s and 70s where they picked a song and, you know, every time the mood was right, they played it. You know, I like that stuff. But I do think Howard Shore did a great job of um, keeping that vibe going when it was, you know, background music and um kind of score stuff can i throw a little theory out there guys sure i i don't want to give tom hanks too much credit here but i feel in a, in a lot of ways it's almost like he's trying to capture the feeling of a 60s happy one-hit wonder pop song 
with there not being any conflict and all that, with it just being a, just a, a quick, happy, get in, get out kind of an experience, you know? Yeah. I like that theory. I think what's funny is like, he clearly has a love and a revere for all this, but you know, um, as we said, like there's so many Beatles references, the Beatles were the exact opposite of this, right? Like, sure. where, you know, it was, um, obviously we know how we know that they've had hit after hit after hit, but there was, there was the, you know, psychedelic drug taking and the we're bigger than Jesus and the Paul is dead stuff and the, you know, the infighting and Yoko and this and that, like, so, um, it's kind of interesting because I think you have to mash those two together, uh, in the thought process based on what we see on screen. Yeah. Mm. I mean, as much as there are a lot of references and a lot of even explicit references, it's not just cutesy, like they say the Beatles a bunch of times in right. this movie. Right. I didn't think of these guys as an analog for the Beatles so much as they're meant to be an analog for all these bands that came along in the wake of the Beatles that kind mm -hmm. of tried to ride their coattails in the US and had maybe one or two hits and flamed out. And so they're they're less the Beatles and they're more the zombies or something like that. Yeah. Although I think the zombies had two hits, Josh. So I'm gonna well, I just that, I just so. said one or two. <laughs> so um no, I agree with you. This is the he does reference the Beatles all the time, but yeah, I think probably, you know, back then, just like in the early 70s when every singer-songwriter was the new Dylan, right? Every every good looking group of uh, you know, uh young singers was going to be, are they the next Beatles and everything? And obviously there's a reason that there's only one, the Beatles, you know? Right. And there's references throughout here. I don't think it's, it's meant to be, these guys are the fictional version of the Beatles. It's, these are the guys who are being compared to the Beatles and characters right. in the movie keep comparing them to the Beatles and to the Rolling Stones at one point as well. So I, I think that is a good comparison. And Dave, I think you're right about the way that this movie is is sort of structured as if it 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 itself is a breezy pop song and that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why it definitely should not be 40 minutes longer um, yeah <laughs> but but going back jason to what you were saying about the music i think absolutely we should give credit to howard shore uh and of course to adam schlesinger for writing that thing you do um but also the other songs in this movie which are not written by adam schlesinger he only wrote that one tom yeah. hanks himself actually wrote a bunch of the songs and yeah. they're all very effective kind of pastiches of different styles of music that were around in this era like you can definitely believe that these are songs that would have fit in during this time period and could have been played on the radio and i think there's instances even of some people who watch this movie and don't realize it's not a true story I think, uh, I don't know about that, but I do like, I agree with you that that music, um, you know, is there, like we have that kind of like aging diva character that, um, Jimmy has a crush on. And then we see him sitting in on her rehearsal and like, she's singing this swooning kind of love song of yesteryear that fits perfectly. Um, I like all that stuff. Like I said, the music heightens this film. I agree with you. And, uh, you know, Adam Schlesinger, who we know sadly died from uh, COVID-19 recently, like this, uh, the you know, he was in Fountains of Wayne, good, good pop group, not my favorite, but I do think this, he just knocked it out of the park here. Yeah, he does a fantastic job with that song. And again, the movie doesn't work without that song being great. Yeah, but I do think the, I do think the other songs work for what they are meant to do that we maybe only just hear the one time. There's also that, that kind of Perry Como-like singer who, was the host of the road show that they take on the various state fairs. And he has some, some believable material as well. And, and beyond the music, the production design, the costumes, all of it, all of the like craft and technical elements of this movie capture the time period really well. Yeah, you're right. And going to what Dave was saying, like that kind of feeling of a zippy pop song, like that's what that Tom Hanks character is, this kind of guide of like, all right, we're here. Now we're going there. And then we're going to LA. And now you're going to be in a movie and like, Super fun things like that. Um, yeah, really worked for me. And Tom Hanks, you know, we know is great. And like I said, he's clearly the most charismatic person in this film. But uh, there's a lot of fun little cameos in there. That's true. Yeah, I mean, he definitely called in favors and all the people that he's friends with that he wanted to have. We've got 
what, Clint Howard is one of the radio DJs. Paul Feig is another radio DJ. Jonathan Demme is the director of the Silly Beach Party movie that they get stuck performing in. And I'm sure there's some others. I'm yeah. sure you have the whole list there. Kevin, po- Kevin Pollack, you know, he hosts that big show in Pittsburgh. Um, Brian Cranston played the uh, the astronaut on the that kind of Ed Sullivan like show. Obviously, Rita Rita Wilson, his wife, played. She did great as Marguerite, that kind of uh, cocktail waitress at the jazz club. And then my favorite, Peter Scolari, hosting the Ed Sullivan type show. His co-star from Bosom Buddies, everybody. Yeah, I think Peter Scolari has been in a lot of Tom Hanks related projects that he is. uh, It's nice that they're they're friends from those days. And Tom Hanks went on to become obviously a much, much bigger star, but never forgot about Peter Scolari. Yeah, it'd be like if uh, George Michael put Andrew Ridgely on all of his singles or something like that. Wham reference, baby. Wham. Yeah, well, who's still alive and who's not? So who won out (laughs) in the end there? (laughs) Well, that's a different podcast, Josh. Yeah. But but I agree those those cameos are fun and you can tell uh, that is one other element where you can tell that Tom Hanks is just having a good time making this movie he's putting all the things that he likes and that he has fun with in this movie whether it's the music or his friends or whatever and and you get that sense you right. watch it and you can go along with Tom Hanks's sense of having a good time Yeah there's also a lot of references to Forrest Gump I don't know if you noticed that but um I did or, not but I would yeah. wanted to tune that out yeah, well, nobody, I didn't nobody, notice it, but I had read about it. So, what what references are there to Forrest Gump other than the time period? Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters, or which was the made up name for the um, uh, the boys, the Wonders, when they were in that kind of beach movie. Those are both uh, referencing uh, restaurants in the Beaumont, South Carolina area where he filmed uh, Forrest Gump. Stuff like that, little stuff that no one would need. But like Mattingly and Hayes, the last names of. Uh, the two members of the band, those were astronauts in Apollo uh, 11, you know, so I guess he's just referencing a lot of his career, I should say. Yeah, things that he loves space. We know he loves space. Uh, he would go on to produce that. Uh, what is it called? From the Earth to the Moon. Yeah, HBO yeah. Miniseries. So, yeah, Tom Hanks. And, you know, that's one of the great things about Tom Hanks is that he's so wholesome. What does he love? Pop songs and space. And <laughs> Tom like Hanks a, movies. Yeah. He's like yeah. a he's like a five-year-old in yeah. his here's but my in a, movie in a nice about, way. Here's my movie about hamburgers. Yeah. I'll watch that movie. <laughs> Tom Hanks, you want to make a movie about hamburgers? I'm there for it. This is a movie about roller coasters. So, yeah, yeah. Those are all nice. There's a roller coaster in this movie. We go to Disneyland. There's another right, super right. awesome rest. Where it's the bass player and a bunch of military guys who just make them do push-ups is kind of a joke. And then they're like, all right, you go to Disneyland with us now. So, yeah. Hey, Ethan Emery and uh, Liv Tyler, year before Empire Records, this year, uh, that thing you do, again, nice moment in the 90s for these two. Yeah, two two beloved kind of almost cult movies, especially Empire Records has quite Right, a- and then Emery went on to Can Hardly Wait a couple of years later. But I guess that's more legacy stuff, so maybe we should come back and talk about it after we rate it though do we rate it now or later josh i don't remember how the podcast works let's rate it now out of uh hit singles five five hit singles how many hit singles i give it it? i give it three hit singles it's it's like i said uh or as ebert said inconsequential but it's just so much fun i don't know how you could give it less three hit singles i agree with everything you just said three hit singles for me which was the same way i felt about it the first time Dave, do you want to give it a rating? I'll go with three and a half. I'm giving it an extra bump just because that song is so damn good. The song is great. I'm going to give the song five hit singles out of five. There it's you a, go. It's a, it's a fantastic song. So we'll come back, though, and mention a bit about that and more when we talk about the legacy of that thing. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about our audience choice poll winner, Tom Hanks's directorial debut, That Thing You Do. And given that it was Tom Hanks's debut as a writer and director, I guess the first thing to mention in the legacy of this movie is his not particularly distinguished further career as a writer and director. And this movie being relatively popular you could envision it as the first step in a new phase of Tom Hanks's career where he could have gone on to be a writer and director of other crowd-pleasing movies, but that's really not what happened. He didn't direct another movie until 15 years later. But really, 
what a what a way to come back. Yeah, Larry <laughs> Crown, the movie that he made 15 years later, it's not particularly good, nor is it remembered by anybody. It is another kind of nice movie where nice people do nice things and nothing really happens. He plays this middle-aged guy who gets uh, who gets laid off and goes back to college and I, I barely remembered anything about this movie, but I had seen it. And so I, and I looked up my review that I had written at the time it came out and I wanted to quote myself. Uh, I said that it was so nice and upbeat and eager to please that you suspect that other movies might beat it up on the playground. So hey, that's that good. Was, that's good. You. Did you see that movie, Jason? Nope. That was no. probably one of the movies that would beat it up on the playground. No, that's yeah, that's no, I, I don't. I mean, uh, I'm not even going to say it slipped through the cracks. I think it was just no interest. <laughs> yeah. And that's fair. And I think that was the way that a lot of people felt about it. It, it came and went and, and, and basically nobody saw it, but he has worked as a producer, as we mentioned on some of these HBO. Series. I think he's directed some episodes of all that stuff too. Yeah. Um, so. And that's, that's been more successful from the earth to the moon and band of brothers. And uh, is it the Pacific? Did he work on that one as well? Well, and he's got that new one on Apple TV that comes out, uh, very close to the time of this recording, right? Yeah, and that's a movie, not uh, not a series, and that he wrote but did not direct called Greyhound. But another, that's another one of Tom Hanks's interests. Military. Like, mil- military history. He's yeah. That, that's more of a dad interest, I guess we could say, than a, than a child interest. But still, uh, yeah, I haven't seen that yet, but I'm sure that I will see Greyhound. So yeah, Tom Hanks remains, of course, completely beloved as an actor and deservedly so he's a great actor and he can play complex parts that are less that are more complex say than than that thing you do um but he remains that beloved figure that kind of america's dad figure and uh as much as i uh, we may remember trashed forrest gump and even kind of trashed his performance in oh, forrest we gump remember in general Josh. i think that tom hanks is great and is an excellent actor and is versatile and uh, deserves all the success that he's had. Oh, thank goodness. Four seasons later, we finally can take this weight off our shoulders, huh? So. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, he's the he's Tom Hanks. He's, you know, Jack Nicholson. He's Marlon Brando. He's one of the all-time greats, right? So he's Meryl Streep. So he's yeah. any of those people. But, uh, yeah, I'd like... Um, it would be fun to see him do some more comedic stuff. He's so great as a Saturday Night Live host, you know, and... Uh, Whenever he comes back is a lot of fun. It'd be it'd be fun to see him do a little more of this where it's just like, hey, man, go back, go back and uh, just have a good time. But uh, yeah, I know, like, you know, um, on that sequence, we talked about the Richard Lester sequence where they're kind of scrambling across the map of the United States. They all fall in Cleveland, which was a reference to his days uh, as like a local theater actor there and all the fun he had. So he's he. Rose colored glasses, baby. You know, he might even look back at his time with the coronavirus as, uh, as <laughs> maybe not that's not a good time, but you know, he is, he was the first celebrity with the coronavirus that we all knew about, I think. Yes, that is true. Maybe Tom Hanks is going to make some sort of sweet, nostalgic movie about the coronavirus. I really hope that does not happen. Him and Rita Wilson reconnecting in the hospital together or something yeah, like that. Yeah, no. But I mean, I do agree with you that I wouldn't mind seeing him do, and I don't know if he has other projects in the works as a writer and director, but I wouldn't mind seeing him do something else with this, with this kind of nostalgic fun tone. I feel like Larry Crown, it wasn't nostalgic, but it was going for that same upbeat, positive, nice people doing nice things tone. And it just didn't work because it didn't have, if, if that was all that this movie had, then it wouldn't work. This movie also has the time period. It also has the music. It also has the production design, all sorts of things that Larry Crown yeah. didn't have. Right. So I think if he did another movie like that, it could work, but it would have to have that hook to it like this movie does. Yeah. And we, and we, you know, I think we talked about the song a lot, but, and, but I think we did single out all of those technical elements. You know, this really did feel like you were, uh, bird's eye viewing, uh, something really kind of fun from the sixties. So, um, as far as the song, we know, you know, pop cultural, uh, phenomenon charted, helped the album chart covered many times, uh, in sync used to play it on tour. Newfound glory had it on their EP from the screen to your stereo. So a lot of, uh, everyone loves this song. It seems like. Yeah, it's a great song. And Adam Schlesinger, 
who wrote that song, as you mentioned before, was in uh, Fountains of Wayne, who I love Fountains of Wayne. I'm a huge, I was a huge fan. I saw them in concert multiple times. It was very, very sad when he passed away. And, um, but beyond Fountains of Wayne, which never, they had one big, they were also kind of like the wonders in a way in that they had one big hit, uh, Stacey's mom, but they, they put out a number of albums and they were together for a long time. But for, for Adam Schlesinger, he was more successful doing the kind of thing that he did with this movie, which is creating fake songs or, or stylistically, stylistic pastiches for other pop culture projects. He worked on the Josie and the Pussycats movie. He worked on uh, music and lyrics, the romantic comedy with Drew Barrymore and uh, Hugh Grant. And he did a ton of work on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I loved and wrote dozens and dozens of songs over the course of four seasons on that show in multiple musical genres. So that guy was incredibly talented and is a very sad loss that he's not around anymore. Agreed, man. I'm not okay. I'm not I'm not like a super fan, but I mean, it sucks. I mean, as we continue to record in our uh, in our remote areas, we want this thing to end already. So and we're, we've lost too many people in general and uh, obviously super talented people come along with that. Yes. Yes, indeed. So um, actor wise, the the four guys who play the band in this movie, they're all still act, but none of them went on to become big stars. Steve Zahn is probably the most yeah. famous of all of them, but even Steve Zahn is not a huge star. No, but he's had some memorable roles, you know. I always like him in Out of Sight. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he and Tom Everett Scott both, uh, they played the same character, first Zahn and then Tom Everett Scott in the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series. So that's a nice, like, pass off from one to the other. Um, oh, I don't. Yeah. I don't really see Ethan Embry or Jonathan Shank much anymore, though. So yeah, uh, Ethan Embry looks very different. He uh, he aged hard, um, but he does a lot of he does a lot of TV. I guess he's he's been on uh, Thirteen Reasons Why, that Netflix series that's quite popular, which I haven't watched, but he's been on that. And yeah, Jonathan Shank actually, I recently read uh, an article, and he does work is just maybe not quite as steadily. And I read a piece where he mentioned. Sadly, that he was out of work to the point where he was going to almost lose his house and he had to call the producers of uh, the DC superhero show Legends of Tomorrow, which he had been on and and basically ask for a favor to get another job on there. So that's kind of sad. He had also spoken out in a kind of Me Too situation about sexual assault that he had experienced on the set of a film that he made when he was younger and he felt that that had kind of harmed his career. So that's a little sad, but, but a nice end in that he, he got the work that he needed and somebody helped him out and, and he deserves it. I mean, they're all solid actors. None of them, they don't have the superstar making quality in this movie, but I think that's probably part of the point is that this is meant to be one of those anonymous bands, one of the bands that came and went, and these guys didn't have it the way that the Beatles did. And those actors portray the characters exactly the way that they should. Yeah. Uh, Tom Everett Scott, the the husband on uh, I'm Sorry, Andrea Savage's show, which is a really funny show. So I would recommend that if anyone wants to watch something that any of these guys are doing currently. But um, the other thing is I think three of the four of them uh, reunited in like 2017 on the uh, goddamn comedy jam which is a comedy show that I actually did once. Um, wow. Yeah. Do you know that show? Is that is like a live comedy show? Yeah. It's Josh Adam Myers, a very funny comedian out of LA. And uh, what happens is you go up, you do your set, and he's got like a live band behind him. And then when you're done with your set, you sing like a rock and roll song with his uh, live band. And uh, Bill Burr became like a huge fan of it and like kind of maybe uh, toured with them or kind of helped them get some some places but we did it out here in uh vegas and it was really fun you really do feel like a rock star doing that and i'm not a good singer but i did get to sing some uh, guns and roses with the rest of the crew and it was steve Byrne and amazing jonathan who were the headliners on ours but uh i think they were like filming for comedy central and like three of the members were in the audience maybe steve zahn wasn't but um they convinced him to come up and do that thing you do with the band so uh that was pretty cool yeah, that is a cool thing. They also recently reunited for uh, one of these Zoom reunions that various celebrities have been doing recently, uh, in part in tribute to Adam Schlesinger after he passed away and raised some money for charity. So that's a nice thing as well. It's nice that they could maybe they're all still friends and they had a nice experience making the movie and they stay in touch. That's always 
And another nice thing about this nice movie that Tom Hanks <laughs> would get people together and they would become friends. And that's that pretty much sums it up for, for me, Josh. I agree. Uh, the only other legacy thing we kind of alluded to, this was one of Charlize Theron's earliest roles. And of course, she went on to be a much, much bigger star than any of those four. Guys. And we love her. Yes, we do. I mean, she's she's fine in this movie. She doesn't make much of an impression. But I think uh, I was not that long ago on the Piecing It Together podcast talking about the decade, uh, the best of the decade. And she was my pick for the best performer of the 2010s in her entire body of work. I think she's fantastic. So, yeah. Yeah. So that'll yeah. do it then. That is that thing you do. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. Yeah, we're on social media. And uh, you know what? We've upped the activity. I, I like that. I like that. We're engaging and uh, we like the, the repartee with our uh, fans and friends and listeners. So thank you, guys and ladies. And uh, where you can find us is uh, awesomemovieyear.com. Uh, awesome Movie Year on Facebook and uh, Instagram and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm at Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and uh, Instagram. J, J. Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Just an abysmal wreck of a website. <laughs> and yeah, we, we it's good to mention that. We had a lot of good, strong feedback on the audience poll for this. Of course, it doesn't work unless we get feedback. So we very much appreciate that from people. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And of course, you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to this great podcast. And also, I did this once before, way back on the Crumb episode, but guys, I got to give a quick plug to Wax Tracks Records, my family's record store. If you like the kind of music in this movie, you should go to Wax Tracks. You'd probably find a 45 of this song, even most likely, if it exists, it's probably there. I love that plug, man. That's fantastic, Dave. Yeah, we're still All waiting right. for the Wax Tracks movie slash reality show. I It'll will. I would happily write at least a web series to take place there. <laughs> so this is the finale, but uh, we have a little bit more. What are we doing in our next episode? Yeah, we're going to come back. We'll do the epilogue, and then I think we'll have some bonus treats after that coming too. But next uh, episode, we're gonna we're gonna talk about all the things we didn't cover that we talked about covering. So uh, if you like learning about things that you would have liked better, this is the one for you. <laughs> So tune in for that next time. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.